Today on episode 104 of Teaching in Higher Ed, Dave Stahoviak and I answer listener questions and also get some feedback and advice from parts of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. It's episode 104, and I invite back to the show Dave Stahoviak. If you haven't been listening for a while, his last name may sound familiar to you. I am married to him, and I always joke when we are at the grocery store that people will say they try to pronounce the last name by looking at the receipt. Thank you, Mrs. And one time someone called me Mrs. Sasquatch, and I will say, that's true love, baby, to have married into that last name. Yeah, well, you, you have nowhere to go but up once you've married into the Sasquatch yes. clan. Yes, and then it brings up all these, well, why did you decide to take his last name? And, and it, it's just a whole... We did have a chat about that. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to take my last name for a while, and then it turned out you were kidding, and I didn't know. <laughs> I do remember I do remember us having a conversation about that. I think you weren't actually kidding. I think you changed your mind, but that's a story for another day. Today we are on the show because there's actually been a number of questions that have come up through different means, whether this was posting on the comments section of various episodes or through email or even through the new Teaching in Higher Ed Slack channel. And I'm excited about the Slack channel, by the way. There are a bunch of questions that come in and it's so fun to see the way people are engaging there. It's it's just, it's kind of has a different feel than Twitter because people seem to be a little bit more open about admitting areas of failure and areas of struggle. And it's just been a great community to be a part of. So anyone who wants to join that, by the way, just send me an email and let me know what your email addresses that you use for Slack, and I'd be happy to add you. And the quickest way to send me an email is to go to teachinginhighered.com slash feedback, because that comes right into my inbox. And a lot of the questions today, Dave, are are just really the beginning of some conversations. I've been holding them in a queue now and realizing we're not going to be able to address them as fully as I know either one of us might like to. But to me, we can start the conversation and recognize that there's more to be said about a subject. And this starts with this first question, which I did take this person's name out because this one came over email and I wasn't certain I had the ability to share the person's name. So we just left it off. But if you want to go ahead and read the message from this individual. Hi, Bonnie. I just want to thank you so much for your wonderful podcast. It is so great to hear from you and all your amazing guests who take university teaching seriously and work hard at it. It fills a serious gap in the conversation about life in higher ed. Couldn't agree more. I have been inspired by and implemented many of the ideas I've been exposed to via your podcast. You're doing such important work. There is one topic I would really like to hear discussed in more depth. How do you actually translate an understanding of and sympathy for students with disabilities emotional and family issues, and other challenges into grading slash evaluation. I've had issues in the past with, for example, students with anxiety who register for my presentation-heavy language course and then reveal that they are unable to do presentations. The disabilities office is often unhelpful with actual solutions for how to accommodate their challenges when it means that they cannot do the required assignments. 
and I am left in the awkward situation of having to pass students who did not or having to pass students who did not master the skills of my course that they're seeking to develop. I would love some insight on this. I am so appreciative that there are two parts to your question. I want to hone in on the first part of your question, which you said, how do I have more of an understanding and of sympathy for students with disabilities? And I love that you started your question that way. It shows me that this to you is somewhat of an ethical thing to treat all of our students with the dignity and the respect that they deserve and just the ability to demonstrate their own skills and ability to learn in in different ways. So I'm just happy you started that way. I you you use the word sympathy and I'm not sure if you are necessarily aware of the difference between sympathy and empathy. I was educated about it some time ago and I always like to know the difference. Empathy is when I can really appreciate where you might be coming from in a given situation because I've experienced something similar. And just to give an example, Dave and I, we suffered from infertility for many years before being able to have children. And so if we ever meet other couples that are trying to have start a family in that way, we have empathy. It doesn't mean we know exactly how they feel, but we kind of have having, I was going to say dipped our toe, but it was a lot more than our toe that was dipped in that particular pool. That's empathy. And then sympathy is where we definitely have feelings of sorrow for the other person's behalf, but it's a little bit harder for us to be able to necessarily relate because we haven't experienced it. And one one tool, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes, which will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 104, was a website that simulates what it is like to have dyslexia. And that was really powerful to go up and see what, and actually to put on literally a pair of lenses and say, what would it be like to be asked a page if I was dyslexic? And I love that. And so the more that we can start there with trying to understand another person's context, in your question, you're asking about disability, but imagine all of the different realms that we would benefit as educators by being more aware of a context. And and Dave and I shared on a previous episode, both of us not ever having difficulty paying for textbooks ourselves when we were in college. And then just now to have more sympathy for people that do and to to try to put into practice ways that we might be more sympathetic and and still, you know, be good educators giving good quality materials, but with that in the corner of our minds or maybe in the center of our minds too. Anyway, I'm glad that you started with that. And and that's one of the reasons why I want this just to be the start of a conversation today. And I was fortunate enough to get to go for a walk the other day on beautiful Newport Beach Back Bay with my friend and former guest of the show, Jeff Hittenberger. And he told me about this book called Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. And I have not read it yet, so I'm not recommending it because I always have this thing. I'm not going to recommend something if I haven't read it yet. But since he mentioned it to me, I've actually seen it in a number of other places as well. And and he just shared about how powerful it was for him to look at diversity through the lens of, of people somewhere on the autism spectrum. And that was really fun for me to see. And so I've started to get some different possible guests and some people that have some expertise in this area to perhaps come in and contribute to the show. And 
All of that to be said, so that's the first part of it, is just having sympathy, having empathy, and that we start there. The second half of your question is really around the expectations, though. If you are teaching a presentations course and someone goes through your class and doesn't present, they have not achieved the learning outcomes for that course. And as harsh as this might sound for me to say this, they shouldn't pass a class because that it would show on their transcript. I took presentations. One would, I mean, this is such a, such an elementary foundational thing. You would assume, and I would hope rightfully so, that that means you have a skill to be able to present. And I've thought a lot about this. I used to teach a one unit business communications class. It was not an extensive one, but for a while there, they were just packing it. And it was a one unit class and they had 54 students in there. And I'm going, oh, come on. And the, I, the, what, what got brought back to me was, well, you should just have them make videos. No, making a video is not the same skill as presenting in a business context in front of a group of people. And if you'd like to make a class that one of the learning outcomes is to make a video of one's self-presenting, then we could do that. But I would suggest that our students are really remiss and not getting the skill of presenting in what will be much more normal in a business context. So that's, sorry, my, my little rant there. <laughs> I'm watching Dave's face go, mm, it, it's obviously something I feel very strongly about. And so what what is ideally supposed to happen is that someone who works in the field of disability services is able to come in and partner with us and with this learner to be able to discover what is called an accommodation. An accommodation is not a excuse for to not perform a particular skill, but it is some way where something is altered to allow them to demonstrate a skill. And of course, a classic example that comes up in my background in human resources would be someone has some type of a visual impairment and you get them a special screen that has is able to be magnified so that it accommodates for their visual impairment. And when we think about the presentations, I mean, specific to your question, presentations, what kinds of accommodations might be needed for someone to give presentations and having a professional to have some kind of a dialogue with and in a dialogue with students as well. I feel like I went on maybe even longer than I had planned on your question, but thank you so much for emailing it in. I know Dave has a few thoughts as well, but you have now just prompted me to prioritize future conversations around this so we can all keep getting better at doing this. Well, in a lot of ways, I feel very ill-equipped to answer this question because I've not had a lot of these come up in my adjunct teaching, Bonnie, or at least no one's approached me with it. And I think that's the kind of thing where the tendency for, for I think, a lot of us is to do what's mentioned in the in the email here is to sometimes we see that accommodation and we're like, okay, how am I going to handle this? And maybe someone gets that passing grade that shouldn't have gotten it. And um, I mean, the... This isn't the best analogy, Bonnie, but the, the best thing I can think of is when I've run into situations in classes before and someone is really struggling with understanding how to write well and to put original ideas together and not just copy verbatim from a source or to not use quotations well and to really write well, 
it is so easy. It, and the temptation is so easy, at least from a faculty standpoint, to just kind of let that go of like, okay, you know, yeah, you just got to be in the paper. You got to see in the paper and it wasn't that good. It's a lot harder and takes way more time and energy to sit down with that student and to have a conversation about their writing style and to talk about some of the assumptions they're making in writing and really start to enter the learning space of how can we help you to become a better writer that's going to serve you throughout the rest of your academic career and more importantly, your professional career and what you're going to do. And as someone who has done that on a number of occasions, it takes a lot of time and it's hard. Those are hard conversations to have. And it's even now I'm so tempted. Like when I see that on a paper, I'm like, oh, it's so easy just to let it go. But I'm almost always so grateful when I've taken the time to really figure out how can I work with this person to help them meet the standard they want to meet and 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 spend the time and the energy that it's going to take to, for us to get on the same page to work together in partnership to get there. And I, I think about that through the lens of the question on disability too. I think it's easy to look at it as a... Um, you know, an either or, mm-hmm. and and if you can, if we can all work to get in partnership with our students, and we are in this together, you know, there are going to be a certain subset of students that are going to take a bunch of that. If we take the time to mentor and really coach in that way, we'll really serve them so well. And so, I'm so curious with some of the other members of the community. I mean, we have people who are part of the teaching hired community who have studied disability studies as their career. I'm, I'm really curious uh, to hear some of the feedback on this episode too. And as a start to the conversation, it'll be, it'll be fun to see, you know, what we can all learn and navigate this better. Speaking of follow-up from prior episodes on episode 42, that's quite a while ago. I was talking about that. I wished I had some way for students online to be able to look at if they got this grade on the final exam, then what would their grade wind up being or if their attendance grades is so that they could fill in some of the gaps and better project out what their future grade was going to be. And I talked about that in Microsoft Excel, there's a feature like this called Scenario Manager. And you could figure if you're looking at maybe three different houses and you wanted to see what your mortgage payment would be and your total overall payment over the course of your 20 or 30 years paying that off, you could have a drop down menu that that's at least one of the ways of displaying the scenario manager data. You can look at scenario one, house one, look at scenario two, house two, et cetera, et cetera. And Jennifer Loveland wrote in and said that there is such a thing. And of course there's such a thing. She said, geodra, wait, I can't pronounce that. It's like algebra, but geodra, geodra. There we (laughs) go. That sounds right. It's a program designed for mathematics. It's usually thought of, and by the way, I'm reading Jennifer's words now. It's usually thought of as visual, but it does have a spreadsheet mode. You can design a geodra. Oh my goodness. Say it again, Dave. Geodra. Let's just spell it. (laughs) G-E-O-G-E-B-R-A. Geodra. Geodra. Yeah. I like that. Geodra. Page. (laughs) I'm settling that on that. officially (laughs) on your computer and then upload it to the geodra tube where your students can access it and she was kind enough to include a couple of links that we will include in the show notes and jennifer i'm just so glad that you were listening and thanks so much for writing that in i loved hearing about a new tool that i haven't heard of before although i do have good news on this because we are switching our institution is switching to a new learning management system called Canvas in the fall. And Canvas does this inside of the learning management 
test. Oh, very nice. They have in their grade things students can go and basically do a scenario manager right there inside the learning management system and actually save them and save different variations of them. And I'm so excited to have that starting in the fall. I cannot wait. Cool. Our next question, we actually have another guest. Instead of Dave, we will be joined by Julie, who is a colleague of mine and actually a colleague of yours or a former colleague. How do we even describe this? Uh, I'm a retired (laughs) adjunct nursing nursing professor at the moment. Yes. And she has the most wonderful 4th of July parties every single year that the kids just absolutely love attending. And so she's going to be answering our next question with me. And Dave, you'll be coming back in just a minute. Another question that we received was from John. And I really thought, that I needed to get some help to answer John's question. In addition to Dave, despite Dave having been a adjunct professor of nursing, I thought we'd bring in the real deal, the big guns. And that is my colleague, Julie Wilson. Julie, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Well, thank you. I thought I'd share a little bit about your background. You have a doctorate of nursing practice and a master's of science in nursing and a bachelor's of science in nursing, and you are a board-certified family nurse practitioner. Yes. And since John's question has to do with your field, I thought you'd bring I'd bring you on, but also to have people keep listening who maybe aren't in the nursing profession, a lot of the advice that you'll be giving can apply in a broader context too. So here's what John wrote in and asked. I just started an adjunct teaching position and came across your podcast. It has really helped me as I make the transition from a clinical nurse manager to a teacher. Thank you. As I was reading your website, I realized I used to listen to your husband's podcast when I became a nurse manager. Small world. I am thinking of going back to school next year to get my doctorate degree, doctoral degree, any advice on how to prepare for that next step in academic and professional development. And Julie, I know you had a few thoughts on this. Tell me a little bit first about considering your goals. Well, I think when, John, you've probably already researched this, but there is three directions you can go in nursing in that there is a EDD, uh, which is educational focus. There's one you can get on in nursing education. A PhD, which is more research focused. And then there's the doctor of nursing practice, which is kind of a blend of uh, clinical, organizational, um, economic, informatics, and, and develops leadership skills as well. I was wondering if you are more focused on continuing in your clinical management degree, if you wanted to have a, your goal to be more of a nurse educator, or if you probably have strong clinical skills already, if you wanted to be more um, a clinician and pass on those clinical skills as a clinical nurse educator. So first of all, you have to consider your goals and what your long-term outcome would be. One of the things I would really advise is to go on LinkedIn and look at profiles or even on the various institutions website if you want to continue your teaching focus and look at what specific degrees those people have earned and really have those conversations. I can say that I know now way more than I did when I started my own program about some of these distinctions. And if you don't know in advance, it can really hinder you. And and you're making such a big investment of time and money. I cannot emphasize this enough along with Julie. And I know your second piece of advice is to choose the type of program that you're that you're going to go into and kind of how that's going to work in your life too. What are your thoughts on this one? 
Well, there's two. Obviously, everyone knows that there's an online focus on that is very popular with people with families and have full-time jobs like being a clinical manager. And there's pros and cons with having an online program versus an in-class program. Because of technology being so advanced right now, there's a lot of asynchronous ability to schedule your lectures and watch them on your own time. And if you just have to decide what kind of a learner you are. If you would like to, if you're very auditory and you really like to have the interaction face-to-face, that is one of the benefits of being actually in class. I know that some people really like being uh, one-to-one and being in a classroom situation as far as developing collegiality with peers and also getting a chance to network for future positions and that. And that face-to-face in some people's view is a real good benefit versus online, which can develop too. Relationships absolutely can develop that way as well. You just have to decide what will work out best for you and what, how you best learn and also the speed and how fast you want to graduate. It's fun to see so many programs these days, too, that are experimenting with more hybrid models and some of the other types of approaches to learning. It's just fun, and definitely doing your research and talking to other people in the program will be a big help. The third thing was actually my big thing around brushing up your technology skills. This is always my thing of if you're thinking about going to get your doctoral degree. Julie, I know you know this, I teach a few times a year in a doctoral program. And I do tend to really be surprised at sometimes how people are just working harder than they need to with their technology and specifically around the area of word processing. Since any kind of a program like this, you'll be writing a lot of research papers. And it's just hard when you have to fight with your word processor all the time. And there's a website called lynda.com, although there's a lot of websites like this. lynda.com is with an L-Y-N-D-A. And they have tutorials on various word processors, including Microsoft Word. And just getting it to do the work for you is going to really make a huge time-saving difference over the long haul of your program. And then getting to know a good references manager. And I have tended to really be getting to know Zotero really well. In fact, I found out there's an add-in that I can cite references from my Zotero library on my WordPress blog. It was very exciting. I talked about that in a recent episode. Mm -hmm. But the more we can get to know a good references manager and a word processor is really going to help tremendously in any kind of a doctoral program like this. Any other advice from you, Julie, as far as brushing up your technology skills? Yes, there's actually a program. There's several programs that you can purchase uh, for very reasonable that will automatically put your papers in APA format, which we all know for nursing, that's how all papers are required to be placed in. And you can actually just There's also default settings in Microsoft Word for APA formatting, but learning that and making it easy uh, for you will save a lot of time. I know Zotero, you can also have the references put in APA format automatically, so it saves a lot of time until you finally really get uh, really good at at knowing that format. It's kind of nice when technology can do it for you. One of the last pieces of advice I know you have is to start getting curious. Yes. Well, when you are going to go for a doctorate, 
degree, no matter what focus, either EDD, PhD, or DMT, you will have to have something in your mind that you would like to study. And for any kind of interview, they will usually ask what kind of research you would like to do for your capstone project or your dissertation. And so to have some things that are in your mind that you've always wanted to look into because you will be spending many, many hours writing, rewriting, studying, focusing, reading on whatever focus that you are going to do. Think about what kind of uh, thing you want to do that a practice change, for example, or something that would make a difference in uh, the people that you're working with or, or just in nursing in general and uh, choose that and then take it from there, but have some kind of an idea, get curious. Julie, thanks so much for answering John's question. And I hope this is just the start to many guest appearances from Julie Wilson on the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Julie, for joining in on this episode and for answering that question. Our next question here has to do with the guest we had on, James Lang, talking about his book, Small Teaching. And Dave, I know we had a question from Daniel as a follow-up to that episode. Daniel says, thank you both for a great podcast on small teaching. Many departments spend the bulk of their attention on shrinking budgets and organizational issues. Are there small approaches to reclaiming teaching as a focus at levels above the classroom on campuses? This incremental approach resonates with me in my teaching since I don't have the bandwidth to make large changes all at once. As I become more involved in service, I'm wondering what I can bring from this approach into the larger context. Daniel, thanks so much for your question. And I love that you're starting small with this. Institutions can just, it can just get overwhelming thinking about trying to even just change one single process, let alone change, rethink an entire approach to something. And I love that you would would be inspired so much by James Lang's book and his work around small teaching to think about small leading. I mean, I don't don't even know what the analogy would be here. I have a couple of things that I, well, one thing I've tried and one thing I'm planning on trying from this whole framework of instead of trying to just change everything and just having this mammoth change doing little things. And that is that I wanted a few years back to just be more engaged with other people at the institution where I work around technology, but without it being some formal thing. We have, whenever there's a committee, you have to get a charter for the committee and it has to go through the Senate and then you have this and then you turn in minutes. I mean, just it's a, it's a thing. And, and this is meaning no disrespect to committees. But for me, I just wanted an informal personal learning community that we could get together and and really improve our own practice with teaching and particularly with using technology. And so I put together, I put out an invitation. We are able to, at our institution, send out emails to the inf- entire faculty. This would not work well at larger institutions, but there might be ways for you to get the message out. But I sent out an email to the whole faculty and said, gosh, I'm going to be starting a group. And if you'd like to join me, send me an email back. And then I use a program called Doodle. And Doodle is just the best way that I know of, of finding what would be a good time in common with a whole group of people. And I put out, you know, we could do Wednesday afternoons, or we could do Monday afternoons, or we could do Thursday, and they, they would be able to specify these times would work for me, these times would would not work for me. And they even have an option in there 
yeah, meh, I could do it. I could do it if I had to. They have like a meh answer that you could go and select. And it's just a great, great way of getting people together. And this was a message that was sent out probably to maybe 75 or 80 people. And we wound up not with one group, but with two groups. And we had, I think, somewhere around 13 or 14 people in one of the groups and 15 or 16 people in the other group. I was just expecting one group. And before I knew it, we just had this great collaboration where people would come together. And the format that we used was that we would each go around the table and we would share one thing that had our attention in recent weeks having to do with technology. And then one challenge that we were having, not even necessarily having to do with technology, but just that we thought technology might be a solution for, but we forced ourselves not to solve that problem during that meeting. And then what we would do is each meeting had one follow-up from the prior meeting where one of those people that had shared, oh, this is a cool thing I found lately, came and gave a longer demo. So we actually voted on it and said, you know, wow, I'd love to hear from Julie more about that piece of technology that she recommended. And then she would come in and give like a 10 or 15 minute demo and, and around that the next time. And then we would pick one of those challenges to tackle and say, gosh, you know, you're having trouble finding a good time to meet with people. Gosh, maybe you could try Doodle or something like that. Or at least we could have them tracked and knowing that people were looking for solutions around this kind of thing. It was really cool. And to me, the reason why I think this might be an answer for you is just to start something informal is that it just doesn't have the barriers that something else does. But I'll tell you that really had I don't think it was the only, I know it wasn't the only contributor, but I believe we have a different culture today in our institution around leveraging technology in our teaching than we did before those groups started gathering. And it's fun, if I hadn't set out to do that, I, I would have thought that was too hard <laughs> to try to do. But that really was an outcome of just a fundamental shift in our culture around that, that I'm excited to say those groups really, I, I see now with what people have told me, have, have had an impact on. And then I'm trying to do this a little bit now around our transition to Canvas. I'm in a formal consulting role right now with my institution and will be likely wrapping that up here. But I'm also getting ready to start using Canvas myself in the fall when I go back to my regular teaching gig without that. And so I've decided I might just have weekly gatherings using Zoom, which is our institution's synchronous meeting tool. And just inviting people, hey, if you want to drop in and we'll kind of start out with the basics. But drop in, show what you're doing with your Canvas classes, because a lot of my colleagues are starting to build things. We could kind of have like the adult version of show and tell, and then talk about any challenges that you're having, any questions. And I won't be able to answer all the questions, but we certainly can at least start to track those and be tracking down answers for people too. So I'm kind of excited about trying that same approach, but doing it in an online synchronous thing, because a lot of us live a considerable distance from campus and are off campus for the summer. I have a few thoughts on this as well, Bonnie, when I think about influencing an organization. And one a book that has become very popular in business circles and entrepreneurial circles is called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And uh, you'll often hear this referred to in some of the organizations out there they're doing, trying to build and scale and influence change. And the thing that I really like about this book is the concept that he talks about is a minimum viable product of rather than spending years building something and not really getting feedback on it is to do something that is functional and good and helpful to people, but but not anything more than that. 
and to get it out there and get people to start using it. And I really am finding that is in contrast to my <laughs> how I've normally approached life, <laughs> which is, uh, and I think for a lot of us who have taught in the university world, is to have things figured out, to have them perfectly planned, to get A's on everything you do. And if you really mess something up, maybe you got an A minus or a B plus on something, but to really have thought through that really well. And um, I've just been reminded a lot more recently, not only the business conversations that are going on, but also in uh, in my own professional development is the importance of starting small to go to what James Lang had uh, talked about with Bonnie in that episode of our tendency is to want to do a lot to start an initiative or start a committee or start something big. And I, I, I just find that more often than not of picking one thing to do and have a small win come out of that gets the momentum going, especially in an organization. And so I'd certainly, um, I, I certainly pull inspiration from that. And I'm, I, by the way, I, I struggle with that daily Daniel of like reminding myself, I'm like, don't have this all planned out. Don't have this all planned out. Like do something to get started. And so that would be my recommendation for you is to think of what is one thing that you could potentially get a little bit of traction or like Bonnie was saying, of get a couple of people together informally and say, Hey, you know, three of us are going to sit down and meet and have coffee once a month. And we're going to talk about one thing we're going to do to bring something into our classroom a little more effectively this semester. And that may be the start. Of, and if it never gets bigger than that, that's okay. I mean, that's three of you doing something that you haven't done before that's benefiting a whole lot of students. The other thing I was thinking of is the uh, the book Leading Change by John Cotter, who's the uh, probably the leading expert in the world on organizational change and influence. And he has a whole part of the book on his change model of how to influence an organization is built around creating what he calls short-term wins. Even if you're working towards a larger objective, and of trying to really change the culture, change the um, the professionalism of teaching within the organization, of, of do some things, first of all, to get some traction, uh, get a short-term win, celebrate those short-term wins. And then as you get some of those under your belt, uh, not only does the breakaway speed of the organization start to change and people, there's some momentum going forward, but also what's key about that is your confidence level and your ability to do something that influences change starts to change. And, uh, and all of a sudden, as after you've seen three or four wins happen on a small scale, then you can start to tackle oh, what's a medium win we could do. And you've got, you've got more people involved. I've just found it to be such a smart way for me and for clients to handle trying to influence change within their organization. So, and it goes right along with James's message, Bonnie, of of thinking what's a small thing we can do, what's a small change, and that's so true for changing organizational culture and behavior too. This is the point in the show where we each recommend something that's had our attention in recent weeks, and. Some of you might remember that I had a guest on the show, Therese Houston, and she shared in that episode about her book, Teaching What You Don't Know, which has been an absolute treasure to me, but she has produced another treasure. And it is a book I'd like to recommend today that I just finished reading. It's called How Women Decide What's True, What's Not, and What Strategies Spark the Best Choices. And it is well-written. It is based in research and is definitely counterintuitive to what I used to think about how women decide and what kinds of advice that I might give in the future to young women who are looking at gender differences in organizations and how they might 
really, in, in some case, uh, one of the chapters that really stands out to me had to do with confidence. And I've kind of been a proponent for, you know, just behave confident and, and, and that that actually can be detrimental in some cases. I'm not articulating it very well. I'm trying not to give anything away and also not, I won't be able to do justice to the writing, but I just suggest people check out the book, How Women Decide, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. On a completely unrelated topic to higher education, since I already gave a couple of book recommendations, Bonnie and I started, we for years had used Mint to track our finances. I think it's mint.com. Does that sound right, Bonnie? And Mint is great as far as um, organizing budgets and all that. We just have found that it wasn't quite exactly what we needed over time. And, you know, our budget wouldn't always match up with reality. And both of us have had different incomes over the years because of consulting projects and all that. And I think Mint's great if you like, you know, you're, everything's always the same every month. Um, and we recently heard that uh, a, a service, a software service called You Need a Budget had come out with a web-based version, uh, which is one of the reasons I we had never considered it previously is because it was a software and you couldn't download bank transactions. There was a whole bunch of limitations that fit in with their philosophy, but just didn't weren't practical for us. And they have uh, recently released a web-based version of the software. So in that way, it's similar to Mint. But we've really found that it's been helpful as far as just how it handles budgets and categorizes and gives every dollar a job. And uh, it's it's based on the envelope method, which some people are familiar with as far as budgeting. Anyway, I, I think but, we... But it doesn't involve actual envelopes there are no there are no envelopes <laughs> that involved. would never work for me Mm-mm. no so it's all it's all done digitally but i think we found it to be really helpful as far as just how we're thinking about saving money and uh, allocating money for certain things and uh, and it's really it, it's a good structure but it's also very flexible and adaptable so i would recommend that if you're looking for a good solution for managing your finances you need a budget Dave, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And I know we have a few reminders for people as we close the episode. Well, thank you for having me. I'm uh, always honored to be part of this community and part of the conversation. One thing we want to remind you is if you have yet to sign up for the email newsletter, what will they get if they sign up to the for the email updates? Your book. You have a uh, guide on te- technology in higher education, e-learning, higher education. Yes. This is going so well. 19 tools to help use technology in facilitating learning and in productivity. And you can get that free guide and the weekly email at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And if you have yet to leave a review for teaching in higher ed, this could be your week. It could be. And, uh, and we'd encourage you to do so. And the guide is great, um, but the real value is the messages you send every week with all the links to all the guests and an article you write. And so, so much to get from that. So join the community. We're excited to have you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. And thanks, Dave. My pleasure. <laughs>